Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, James, and today I'm bringing in a paper about ion thrusters for airplanes. It sounds like Star Wars to me. I am Charlie, the other host of this show, and I have not read the paper, so I'm obviously going to be asking lots of questions. Just get ready to run the Kessel Run in less than 12 parsecs, Charlie, and you'll be set. We're both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn more about the discoveries that affect us all. We are the Paper Boys. Okay, James, you said the research this week is about an ion engine, an ion thruster. What is it? Yeah, so it's this new ion thruster technology for airplanes. So essentially, you could have an airplane with propulsion that has no moving parts. Wow. Okay. So for full disclosure, I sound like I'm playing dumb, but the reason why I'm confused about the terminology is because my research is actually very related to this. My lab works on electric propulsion for spacecraft, which is like a form of this, but like you only use it in space and it's really, you know, you've got these dense plasmas and stuff, but I've never heard of this for an airplane on the ground. Like I didn't even think it was possible. So that's why I'm kind of confused about the terminology here and whether it's the same thing. Well, brace yourself because I'll probably be using the terminology very wrong. This is very far outside (laughs) of my expertise. But what you said is correct. This is actually the first time that someone has been able to successfully demonstrate the use of an ion thruster for an airplane. Really? Ever. Wow, that's amazing. People have done simulations before, but this is like, I'll get into the paper more in detail, but they actually actually fly an ion thruster on an airplane. This sounds like a very sci-fi kind of thing. It definitely is. It definitely is. And uh, well-timed with our grad student highlight this week as well, we are welcoming Anna Shepard, who studies uh, electric propulsion for spacecraft. So She's a rocket scientist. You might say. You might say. Uh, so definitely excited to hear her talk about that. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear more from Anna. So there were a couple headlines in the news recently about this new airplane that had been developed. Uh, CNN said... This plane has no moving parts and doesn't need an engine to fly. Ooh, what a bad boy. (laughs) The Scientific American said, Silent and simple ion engine powers a plane with no moving parts. Wait, wait, wait. Silent? Silent. I thought you've been hyping this up with all these TIE fighter sounds all day. (laughs) I know. In my head, I've just been thinking about all those, like, you know, the Star Wars, like, But actually, uh, that's one of the big selling points for why they did this research is... It's silent propulsion. So, wow. Star Wars, you've lied to us for over 40 years. Dang. I mean, I was so excited to see a video of this thing zipping around like that, but there is a video, but it maybe make that maybe sound. at this point in the episode we'll splice in a clip of the tie fighter sounds so that people don't have to hear you going pew 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 anymore. You I mean, we'll let them choose. We'll okay. let them choose. Okay. <laughs> and then, I'm just uh, I'm just busting your chops. <laughs> Dang it, Charlie. Another headline that came out from Popular Mechanics was ion thrusters from science fair experiment to aircraft engine, question mark. Ooh. So this actually came from a science fair? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, this came from very well-esteemed graduate students at 
the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Mm, I've heard of that one. Also known as MIT. So the paper itself that we're discussing is called Flight of an Aeroplane with Solid State Propulsion. Okay. This was released by the first author, Haofeng Zhu, and the primary advisor, Stephen Barrett, both from MIT, a few folks from Aero Astro in the department at MIT, as well as Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and one guy from MIT Lincoln Labs. Oh, that's cool. Seems like a solid group, and it's neat. You know, they're talking about this solid-state airplane. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah, why do they call it solid-state? So, to explain that, I have to get into some history. Ooh. My favorite. My, my favorite. Both of our favorites. Wow. <laughs> so, solid-state refers to the use of silicon, silicon electronics, at, with the development of the oh, transistor. Okay, because I've heard that word in, like, the computer industry. I never realized that that's really... I thought it was just a buzzword. <laughs> No, it, it talks about, so the transition from using vacuum tubes to using semiconductor materials. Okay, okay. And uh, as I brought up on many previous episodes, this is actually something that we can thank radar for in World War II. Wow. The fact that we have a lot of solid state electronics. Thanks to radar? Before radar, most radio systems were using vacuum tubes. And so the reason, the distinction in terms, so solid state versus vacuum tube, is that in solid state, the electrons are actually moving through a solid material the semiconductor versus in a vacuum tube it's moving through a gaseous state oh i see okay and so vacuum tubes are big they're very power hungry they're fragile and solid state electronics are the opposite they're strong they're cheap they're very robust huh okay and radar just spurned the development of that in world war ii so gotcha thank Th you radar thank you world war ii <laughs> Just Yeah, so many great things. Uh, so that's where the solid state's coming in. It's essentially saying all the electronics are just using like conventional silicon electronics. Okay. That seems like a weird distinction to make here when like it's very much the propulsion technology that has changed, not so much the electronics. Or is it the electronics that enabled this? So it is the electronics. Because I know that this technique, this like, I want to say they call it like an ion wind or something. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, I believe that this is something that like we've known about for a while and like they've been able to use before, but I'm guessing that I mean the problem in electric propulsion in space is like it's always a power consumption one. So I'm maybe that's what has been the limitation so far here. Yeah, so they get into it. So we've known about these electrodynamics at least for over 100 years. There was sort of this crazy guy Thomas Brown, he was a little bit of a quirky inventor in the early 20th century. Okay. And uh like he originally thought he found anti-gravity when he discovered this effect. Oh, yeah. But uh, people were like, no, it's probably not anti-gravity. But he kept at it and made some good, like... He found something, so... Fundamental results, yeah. But it's been hard to uh, hard to really harness it. And so, like you were saying, there are, like, big energy trade-offs. So I'll talk about those a little more at the end. But uh, I will just open by saying this is not the most efficient way to fly an airplane. Yeah, I saw a picture of what this thing looks like, and it's... It doesn't look like a normal plane. No. So. <laughs> no. So uh, taking a step back, what are electroaerodynamics? How does it work? So like you were saying, electroaerodynamics is this way of creating a force from essentially creating a big electric voltage in the air. Okay. And you're probably going to cringe while I go through and explain this. But essentially what you're doing is you set up two conductors separated by a distance and you generate a very, very, very large voltage in between them. Okay. Like kilovolts. So they're using 40 kilovolts for this airplane. Wow. Okay. That's like a taser <laughs> has that much, right? Yeah. You would not want to touch this thing when it's okay. flying. <laughs> and so what happens is 
in a fluid like air, when you create a voltage that high, you start to create this corona effect around the positively charged electrode. And so what this means is air molecules are losing electrons and they're becoming ionized. And so these ionized particles then get accelerated towards the negatively charged electrode. And now you can think of them almost as like bowling balls or like pool balls as they're moving. And they collide with other molecules in the air and they bounce and they move. And then you're basically just pulling off of Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so from this motion, you create this ionic wind that goes backwards and this moves your plane forwards. Okay, so if I understand this, I'm going to try to regurgitate what you just said. So you have like in the front of the plane, you have this this one electrode that you're creating like a cloud of ions around. So just like it's at a really high volume. We talked about this in the spiders episode, episode one of Paper Boys. Check it out. This, if coronal, you this coronal discharge where you have like a high voltage or high potential on this thing. And you, so you have like a cloud of ions and then you set up this very negative voltage downstream of that and it literally like pulls those ions away. Yep. So it's like you're accelerating the air between the two electrodes. Yep, exactly. That is exactly what you're doing. Does it need wings to do this? Like I'm imagining, I mean, that sounds like the way a rocket works almost. So in this case, you do need wings. Essentially what they're doing with this technology is, you know, I can spin a propeller and create this wind that goes backwards and then it'll push me forwards the way like a conventional airplane motor works. They're just getting rid of the motor with moving parts. Oh, I see. And so... So the ions are also like pushing the air itself. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's why they call it a wind. Yep. You're like generating an actual flow of, of air, not just ions. Yeah, so there's an actual flow of air that's coming oh, back. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and so in the paper, they outline how they go through the design, which I thought was pretty interesting. The first step was just coming up like... Is using electroaerodynamics even feasible? Can you generate enough thrust to fly an airplane? Right. Uh, I would imagine it's hard to get enough ions coming off of this thing. Yeah, like the wind behind it, it's probably not very strong. It could be much better off just using an electric motor. But yeah. um, they did find some interesting experiments. And a few folks previously had found experimentally that you could come up with a thrust to power ratio. This is like the main figure of merit. And you could get as high as 50 newtons per kilowatt. Whoa. Which is, if you're not familiar with uh, thrust to power ratios, it's really high. That's really high. That's like what like a military helicopter uses to take off. That's crazy. So I will, yeah, and I'll put in similar you perspective. Like, yeah, in our research, when you're talking about these in-space ion engines, you're talking about 50 millinewtons per kilowatt. So orders of magnitude lower. Literally, so you're saying this technique can generate 1,000 times as much thrust as just using the ions alone. Yes. So that's, like, that's insane. Three newtons per kilowatt is a jet engine. Oh my gosh. And so based on these... But wait, so it's 50 50 newtons per kilowatt, but how much power do you need to actually make it work? That is a great question. So they did some sizing. It would be unrealistic for what they were trying to do to get 50 newtons per kilowatt. Okay. Do Do you know how unrealistic? Like what power level they needed for that? So I haven't looked up... I can put a link to the article. I need to look into it. They referenced and talked about it a little bit in the paper. Uh, so I'm not sure the experimental setup that these other guys used to get 50 newtons per kilowatt. Okay. But uh, it's probably pretty interesting. What they found for this study, though, was they needed a thrust to power ratio of 6.25 newtons per kilowatt. Okay. Still pretty high. Stronger than a jet engine. Stronger than a jet engine in ratio terms. In ratio, yes. And so they found basically through a couple of experiments that 
they could achieve that. They could get six newtons per kilowatt. Okay. Achieve it with a small set of electronics? I mean, what do you mean achieve it? So the, yeah, they could do that. They could achieve this with a specific electronic design that they had. Something that could be implemented, you know, without being too massive and okay. actually combined into a small embedded setup they could put into an airplane, a model airplane. Okay. So the other experiment that showed 50 newtons per kilowatt, like theoretically, that was probably some crazy setup where they're running like a megawatt of power into this thing and getting like the best possible performance out of it that is like theoretically achievable. That's my guess. Yeah. Like yeah. this would probably be some like insane laboratory setup that like is not ready to put onto Could a model fly. airplane. Yeah. Yeah. But so using like a very practical engineering setup, they got 6.25 newtons per kilowatt here. Yep. This is about like just translating into uh, imperial units, like a little less than a pound per kilowatt of thrust. Okay. So you're putting in a lot of energy to get like the equivalent force, force of you holding one pound in your hand and like supporting that. Yeah. But you could imagine like you can hold a plane with that. Yes. Yes. So. I mean, what really matters is that you need enough thrust to overcome, yeah, like the drag on the plane. So. Exactly. Okay. And so once they figured out how much thrust they could generate realistically, they could start going through a design optimization to figure out the sizing of their model airplane. Okay. This they outlined in pretty good detail actually in the paper, but essentially they were able to boil it down and say like, we need a wing that is five meters. The plane itself can't weigh more than 2.4 kilograms. Five meters which and 2.4 kilograms? Which sounds big, but a lot of model airplane gliders are designed like that. Like, that's a pretty common size for model airplanes. For a model airplane? Five meters? It's big, but people have built those for, like, 70 years. Isn't But isn't that, like, the size of a regular plane? Like a Cessna or something? Five meters? I mean, a Cessna is bigger than five meters. Okay. Probably 10 meters. But, okay. yeah, it is It is really big. And if you watch the video, you're like, this is a big plane. Really? Yeah. Wait, where do they test this thing? They tested it in one of the indoor MIT tracks. Oh, so it's like a big gym. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so that was one of their design constraints. That's funny. Like, at, they, at MIT, they use their gyms to test their <laughs> their ion engine planes. Yeah. <laughs> what else is a gym for? Yeah. <laughs> so they needed a plane with five meter wingspan. The weight had to be less than two and a half kilograms. And they needed to be able to achieve a velocity of 4.8 meters per second, which is like 11 miles per hour. And... They really actually only needed to achieve a thrust of 3.2 newtons. Okay, so this thing was able to fly at a very low speed, 11 miles an hour. Yeah, I mean, that's why you get this big wing. Gotcha. With like a very low wing loading. So the weight of the plane compared to the area of the wing is very low. Okay, so I did see like a little video of this and it looks like it looks like the Wright brothers plane, you know, like massive like many layers of wings like they're just doing everything they possibly can to get enough lift on this thing right yeah so there's actually only one wing what you saw underneath oh those are the ion thrusters the oh solid state no way propulsion yeah that's cool they made them aerodynamic so they actually used a specific airfoil for the negatively charged electrode and we'll put a picture up so you can actually visualize this on the website but yeah that's, it's kind of a cool futuristic looking plane that is really cool and they make a lot of comparisons to the wright brothers oh really yeah because this is like you wait know, i hope not like years. i hope not like saying that they are like the wright brothers they don't i mean they don't say that like this is as monumental as the wright brothers okay but there are a lot of parallels between like the flight distance and duration yes the wright brothers yes that's kind of the that's the parallel that I was drawing in my mind, so. Yeah, like a crude demonstration of a first flight. Right. So, okay, they figured out how much thrust they can generate. They figured out what plane they needed to build. They built it. That's the most important part. 
And then what they needed to do was design a power system capable of generating 600 watts at 40 kilovolts. So a lot. I mean, you're the electrical guy here. Tell me how hard that is. I mean, 40 kilovolts is not inconsequential. Yeah. So 600 watts, like your waffle iron is probably a thousand watts. So you can generate that. Sure. But you have to put this on board. You have to do this in less than 2.4 kilograms. Yes. And 40 kilovolts is like, that'll kill you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you got to be careful. Like it's doable, but they had to get pretty creative. Huh. And another thing that you need too, which is interesting to actually do these experiments is you need an alternating current, but they have to put direct current batteries. So they had to come up with a pretty cool design for an inverter. So that's how you go from DC current to AC current. Why do they need AC current for, I would think that you would want to just run like a constant voltage across these electrodes. Because if you reverse that current, then wouldn't your plane go backwards? They had to do it because they needed to step up the voltage. So they have like 200 volts from their batteries. Oh. But they have to get it up really high. I and see. so to do that, you need to, it's easier if you use like alternating currents and transformers. And oh, so they man. came up with this thing and this voltage multiplier using different semiconductor diodes. It's pretty cool. They have a schematic of it. On wow, the paper. Okay. Uh, but I'm now really understanding why it's been so difficult to get all these electronics packaged onto a plane until now. Yeah. And one of the big challenges with electronics like this to handle such high power loads is usually the, the electronics themselves get bigger. Right. And so that in itself is like a pretty cool feat. They were able to do it, though. They got it all packaged. They got it on this plane. So if you're imagining a plane with like a long, high wing... And then underneath the wing, there are these wires going the length of the wing. There's a couple different rows. So it kind of looks like instead of like a biplane or a triplane, it almost looks like this plane that has like six wings. But Oh, but all those wings are, are just wires. They're just wires to generate the propulsion. Wow. So That's crazy. Yeah. So they were able to build it. And then what they did is in the MIT indoor track in the gym, they built this little catapult to get it launched. Oh, really? Just like the Wright brothers. Just like the Wright brothers. And so what they ended up doing is so you have this little catapult and a ramp. And so before they take it off, it takes them actually about 20 seconds to get this thing up to the voltage. They step it up slowly. Oh, I see. Okay. To start generating thrust. And once it did, then they hit this button and it would launch the plane into the air. And there's an awesome video that we'll post that they published as a companion to the paper. But they got flights up to about 50 or 60 meters. Wow. Was that limited by the size of the gym or was yeah. it, or was, did the electronics run out of charge at the end? So they don't say in the paper. They oh, don't say in the paper if it ran out of batteries. Koi bastards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, they were limited by the gym. They only had the 60 meter okay. like space. I am curious how long they could actually run it. They talk about duration being a problem. Like this is really just a proof of concept. Because you say 600 watts and the batteries store a certain amount of energy. Yeah. Energy over time is, is your watts, so. And they do not have very much weight of batteries. Right. I mean, you could do that on the back of the envelope yourself. I would imagine those aren't going to last very long, like minutes, tops. Yeah. I mean, I would be surprised if they got more than 60 seconds worth of flight on a battery. Gotcha. Max. So just, but, you know, slap solar panels all over those wings and... Got yourself drive your weight up to 40 kilograms. I know. And yeah. yeah. You can see it becomes a hard design problem. But yeah. the thing that is really cool, and they have, you know, I'm a sucker for graphs that tell the story. <laughs> they have the graph that tells the story. Okay. And so if you look at the flight distance for the different flights that they did, 
In one set, they did a set of test flights unpowered. So the same aircraft where they didn't turn on the thruster, they launch it and it goes less than 10 meters. Yeah, so I'm looking at this and it's just like a trajectory line. It just drops immediately. It's like it goes up and then just straight down. It's just like into the ground. Just like Charlie said. (laughs) And then the other ones, as soon as they launch and have the thruster powered on, I mean, it just keeps gliding. Yeah, it's pretty steady. And then you see at the end of the flight, it does that same drop once they shut the thing off. Yep, and they can land it. So one of the cool things in the paper, looking at the graph, you could be like, well, maybe they're just gliding and they just had a like better launch. Right. So to prove that that was not the case, they plotted their total energy. So total energy is made up of potential energy and kinetic energy. Okay. So the potential and kinetic energy of like the motion of the plane itself. Yeah, exactly. And so essentially what happened over the course of the flight was they were able to gain altitude as they were traveling these 50, 60 meters. So what that means is, as it's gaining altitude, they must be injecting energy into the system from the thruster. Oh, wow. Okay. So that means that they're actually like overcoming gravity and drag using this thing. Like the energy from the batteries is actually being turned into motion of the of the aircraft, like either a raise in altitude or they could maybe accelerate the speed or something. Yeah, exactly. So it means that they're not only able to achieve steady level flight, which is sort of the basic that means like for, energy in is exactly equal to all of the losses in the system here. Like all the inefficiencies of flight, right? Yeah, the lift from your wing is equal to the drag force and then gravity pulling And the gravity, down. okay. This means that with the ion thruster, they're over not only meeting that, but overcoming it. And wow. They can actually gain altitude. That's cool. That's a, that's a very like effective way of showing the success of this engine. Yeah, yeah. I like that. It was a neat way, I thought, to communicate that fact succinctly and using many fewer words than we just did right there. <laughs> yeah. So, but it took them probably a month to even think of showing that plot and then generating it. So yeah, it, so much work just to convey something, you know, very concisely to us. Three little lines. Yeah. So you may be thinking, well, this is it. They did it. Now, why don't we just fly on commercial jets with ion thrusters? Yeah. Seems like all of our problems are solved, right? Yep. But not quite. Okay. So it turns out that uh, one of the downsides to this that they very clearly bring up is that the overall efficiency that they get for like the velocity and the thrust for all the power that they put into it right. comes out at about 2.5%, Ooh, which is not good. Like an electric motor is way, 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 way higher than that. Yeah. Like a gas engine is like, a good gas engine is maybe 50%. And then yeah. electric motors, I think you can get up to like 80%. They're higher, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this would not be practical. Also, the thrust density is a metric that they talk about when they're talking about trying to scale this technology right. from a model airplane to like a commercial airliner. It doesn't scale very well. Yeah. So I wouldn't imagine. I mean, that they had to build this giant wingspan for a pretty low power thing. Yeah. So the weight for the size of it is very small. So right now, they're really only talking about this being feasible for unmanned aircraft and drones. But one of the benefits is there's no noise. So if you imagine like the drone ecosystem growing over time with drones doing delivery and stuff. Oh, you're not going to hear that annoying buzzing everywhere. Yeah. Like, well. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So this could be really nice. But if it crashes into you, it's not just going to like give you a little cut from the blades. It's going to. It'll just zap you. (laughs) Zap you. It's It's like like a bunch of flying bug zappers. Yeah. Yeah. Flying tasers. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But it's pretty cool. And what's neat is this paper actually brought up another one from Berkeley. 
of a little flying micro robot. It's about 20 millimeters by 20 millimeters square. And so if you've seen a quadcopter before, like they're really popular drones right now that people are using for filming. Yeah. This is like a little mini ion thruster version of a quadcopter. That's tiny. That's like a quarter. Yeah. This picture is it by a quarter. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) And you can see the quarter looks pretty big. The quarter is like bigger than it. And so this guy did, I'll just give him a shout out. Daniel S. Drew is the primary author with an advisor, Christopher S.J. Pister. And so he did a simulation of the flights. And then actually in a wind tunnel, he got it to take off, which is cool. Okay. And he flew an inertial measurement unit to like make some recordings. Oh, nice. So pretty cool little concept flight. That's really cool. I would imagine something like that out in like a windy environment is not going to go so well, but. Uh, No, no. But you got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, no. I mean, if you could scale that up, which it sounds like it's going to be hard to do. Yeah. So the thrust density is like that. Thrust density, just so I'm sure, that's literally like the amount of thrust that you can get per the area of this device. Yeah, exactly. So this thing had like a little tiny area, but it, it because it's so small, it got enough thrust to make it actually fly. Yes. Okay. So what I think is interesting, like looking forward on these things, is that like all of it comes down to the power that you can supply. So like as we keep developing better batteries, which we are doing because electric cars all run on these same types of batteries, that is one spin-off consequence here is that we're going to get much better in-space propulsion and we're going to get much better we're going to get a better ability to fly a plane using these things. We're going to get a better quadcopter, you know. Yes, except I think one of the things that's difficult is we may be reaching sort of a plateau in battery performance. Oh, really? Because most of the like high performance batteries we're using right now are lithium based and lithium offers the highest energy density for all the metals that we have access to oh really and there's like a theoretical limit to it though from what i understand someone who is a battery expert will hear this and cringe but so we're going to need a lot of new innovations to actually like make this feasible but you know people probably thought that about flight when the wright brothers did it yeah well you know you just start throwing some fusion reactors onto these things oh yeah you know what is that thing iron man has in his chest we'll just get one of those that's yeah exactly solve all of our problems but so it's funny that you bring that up like sci-fi influencing science because there's a great interview with the lead author on this that nature did as part of the paper oh really and he was inspired to do this from like those old sci-fi movies of like the flying cars using ion thrusters or like oh really yeah like if you've ever seen fifth element like all the cars are just flying by yes i love that movie yeah that was his like influence for doing wow that's so cool yeah, so we'll see. I I think it's a it's an interesting first attempt. Yeah, did they talk about where they want to take this research? So they are interested in potentially building a, a bigger vehicle to get higher efficiency and exploring like what is the maximum efficiency that they could actually get for an unmanned airplane using this as a technology. And then the other big challenge is just really trying to get innovative in how to improve the thrust density. Yeah, I mean, I would worry that they're eventually just going to hit a wall. And- yeah not be able to improve this a whole lot more. But again, the Wright Brothers analogy comes in here. Like it only took 10 years before planes started looking like normal planes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it seems challenging, but uh, at least they got this one paper out of it. Yeah. I'm glad it's their job and not mine to, (laughs) to solve. It'll be interesting to see where they go with it. Yeah. Tying the paper back to the news. Yeah. I'm actually really curious to hear how the news did because Again, in my sort of field, people were passing around stories about this and sort of saying like, oh, look at this, look at this cool thing. And then 
also having those same discussions of like, yeah, well, but it'll never go anywhere because the thrust of power or the efficiency or whatever, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where popular news missed. Oh, they really? were so excited about the innovation that they're like, this plane has no moving parts and doesn't need an engine to fly. Then it just gets you thinking like, oh, I can't wait until Boeing comes out with their new right. ion thruster airliner. Right. And like rarely is an invention that revolutionary, you know? Yes. And the authors are like, they do a great job describing like the strengths and limitations of this technology. Right. And that doesn't quite come through in the popular news. So it's misleading in the sense of like, you know, this is a very like early technology. Like they're the first to ever do it ever. There's still a lot to learn. Yeah. And it's not even the technology that's new. It's more that the implementation is new. Yes. Yeah. The application of using it on a terrestrial airplane. Right. In any case, it's neat to see projects like this that are very creative, getting attention in the news, and it's certainly exciting. The prospect of silent flight that wouldn't pollute at all, you know, like air travel is like, I think 10% of the carbon footprint of the United States. So if we all used ion thrusters, we would just use electrical energy. Yeah, instead. things would be a lot better. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious, why was this published in Nature? Uh, so technically it was Nature Letters. Okay. But I Why think... was this published in Nature Letters? <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question. I was wondering that myself because it's like, what is it telling us about nature? It but... has nothing to do with the natural world. No, unless maybe th just the fact that it's harnessing this ionic wind as a propulsion method. But Yeah, but that's not like a naturally occurring phenomenon. I mean, a corona is a naturally occurring phenomenon. But it's not naturally produced in this case, you know. It's, uh, yeah, it's the whole thing engineering. Is, it's like way more engineering based right. than like You would think that this science. would come out in, I mean, I guess I can't think of a good like prominent. It just seems One like. One of the prominent aerospace journals or. Right. Like maybe nature jumped on this because they knew that it would be really popular. Yes. I mean, possibly. You got to think the nature reviewers are doing what they think is best for the like one of the most eminent right. publication places. Right. But, anyway, um, I'm not I'm not criticizing anyone either side of this. I just am pointing out it's a, it's interesting and sort of anomalous that this propped up in nature. Yeah, so. I agree. And then you could ask the question, why is it in nature and not in science? Right. Who knows? Those decisions are above my pay grade as a lowly graduate. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this is a great time to transition into our grad student highlight. We're really excited to have Anna Shepard here today. She is a PhD student at the University of Washington, and she's actually in your lab, isn't she, Charlie? Yes, that's right. She works in my lab on electric propulsion, which I sort of mentioned before. It's this sort of in-space kind of plasma science thing. So we'll just let her, we'll let her explain it because she could do it better than either of us. Hi, my name is Anna Shepard, and I'm a fourth-year graduate student at the University of Washington in Seattle. I'm in the aerospace engineering department, and I have met the paper boys in the flesh. Hashtag life goals. I'm researching advanced propellants for electric propulsion applications in space. There's two main types of space propulsion, chemical and electric. Chemprop uses the energy in a molecular bond to generate thrust, and it's pretty reliable and well understood. This is what happens in your car engine, for instance. Electric propulsion, or EP, which is my field, uses electric energy to heat and accelerate a propellant. There are a variety of schemes, but common ones you might have heard of include hull thrusters or ion engines. EP devices tend to run on noble gases like xenon or argon because they're relatively heavy, easy to ionize, and inert. My research is investigating how we can operate EP devices with molecular propellants. While some have been tested in the past, like arc jets or resistor jets running on ammonia, pulse plasma thrusters tend to run on Teflon, and hull thrusters have run on iodine, we're still trying to understand the basic physics that describe a molecular plasma. 
does the molecule become ionized? Does it break into constituent atoms that are subsequently ionized? Maybe the plasma contains a large number of hot neutrals. We don't really know, but my research will help answer some of these questions. Hopefully, this research will lead to thrusters that are able to operate using in-situ resource utilization, or ISRU. NASA is interested in ISRU to facilitate travel to distant planets, moons, or asteroids, and use resources there to complete a mission. So imagine going to Mars, scooping up some atmosphere, and using that to power a trip home. Science is what keeps me motivated as I go through grad school, so I can't wait to see what else the paper boys will be reporting on in the coming months. Thanks for having me, and have a great day. Well, thank you very much, Anna. I love how in that she sort of says in a very roundabout way, you know, well, I'm a scientist and I do these things. and But what it really all meant is that she's a rocket scientist. She, yeah. I mean, I've met a rocket scientist in the flesh. Yes. There's, there's this really funny, uh, there's this TV, like a British sketch show uh-huh. called That Mitchell and Webb Look. <laughs> and they have this sketch that's one of my favorite ones of all time, where there's this guy at a party and he's like bragging to everyone about how he's a brain surgeon. And he just keeps saying like, oh, well, it's not exactly brain surgery, is it? Every time like someone says what they do. And then this new guy shows up and and he's like, oh, so what do you do? And he's like, well, I'm a scientist. I work primarily with rockets. And he's like, (laughs) kind of, and then, you know, and then the punchline is. Well, it's not rocket science. Yeah. So. Gotcha. Anyway, but it's just funny the way, you know, her explanation sounded just like that. So. (laughs) Yeah. Very humble, Anna. Well, thank you so much, Anna. We really did appreciate hearing about your research. Thank you, everyone, too, for tuning in to this week's episode. Yes, thank you. Please subscribe to the show and check out the website. We'll have the MIT paper there. We'll have a couple news articles and, more importantly, the video of this thing flying at paperboyspodcast.com. You can also send us any feedback on this episode or any ideas for a future episode. Shoot us an email, paperboyspod at gmail.com. We are also very active on Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to be our friends, hit us up, paperboyspod on either platform. We love to get comments, questions, anything you have about the show, science. We love it. You'll be doing James a great service because as soon as he sees that Instagram notification, it means he gets to procrastinate. Oh, it's my favorite thing. It's It's all he does. Yeah. Yeah. Help me not write these papers. (laughs) And last but not least, uh, leave us a review on iTunes if you want to, or better yet, tell a friend about Paper Boys, anyone that you know who is even remotely into science kind of stuff. We'd love it if we could share all this science with as many people as possible. So, Well, thank you again, and please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>